It's June 17th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. On tonight's special edition of Bite Marks Cafe, we'll jump right into our conversation with a couple of news guests. Wei Fong from Inter-Island Terminal will join us to talk about the June Kaboom series at Agora, and in fact, it's first anniversary. Then Jay Fidel returns to tell us about the next Think Tech panel, this one focused on the military in Hawaii. And finally, we'll meet a local group called the Science Communicators Ohana. Science is, in fact, behind more and more of the stories leading the news, making the ability to explain and provide context even more important. What are some of the tools and strategies communication professionals are using these days? Now, please note that today's program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls. But we always welcome your feedback. You can email us at any time at feedback at bitemarks.org. And we're getting right into our news guest. Uh, joining us is Wei Fong from Inter-Island Terminal, and she's here to tell us about the June Kaboom and some of the events that are associated with it. Uh, welcome to the show, Wei. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. Now, I uh, guess what, this is the uh, one-year anniversary of Agora, is that yes, correct? Yes, we opened Kakaako Agora about a year ago, mm-hmm. last June, and we opened it with our first offering um, called June Kaboom. The idea was instead of doing a traditional kind of opening reception, we would spend the first month celebrating the arts and community in now, I no. do want to talk about the June events. It's an explosion of events throughout <laughs> June, and we're already halfway through, more than halfway through. But I did want to ask you, I mean, we've I've been to many events at the uh, Agora space, and I liked the wide diversity of programming. As a nerd and as a tech person, there was certainly that tint to some of it, but a lot of social causes, a lot of ci- civic causes as well. Um, but you have been toiling behind the scenes to make all of that happen. How do you feel the first year of Inter-Island Terminals uh, Kaka'ako Agora has gone? It's been a really rich experience. It's not just me personally. We have a whole team mm-hmm. of folks working on it. Um, through paid volunteer, paid some paid hours, mostly volunteer hours. We work closely with our partners, Kamehameha Schools at Arkakaako, and countless community groups who've chosen to use the space for their presentations. Mm-hmm. Now, for any of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with uh, Kakaako Agora, maybe uh, quickly describe what exactly is this? Sure. It was a project to turn what was formerly um, a warehouse space that had been vacated by UPS, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a vacant warehouse space on Cook Street, across the street from Fisher, where you get all your office supplies and school supplies, and to transform that into a gathering space for our community. Um, We loosely call it a community arts venue, but it's used for way more than the arts, as you know, tech events, um, environmental science events, birthday parties, luau (laughs) sometimes, uh, high school reunions this season. That's amazing. Yeah. No, it's great. And uh, the uh, inside is a very unique kind of experience because from the outside, it looks like any of those Kaka'ako kind of warehouse buildings and you walk in and there's actually a a platform structure inside. And you kind of do feel like you're in like an indoor park. Yeah. And that was the idea. The idea was that we need, you know, as Kaka'ako continues to grow and change month to month, day by day, the important part was keeping a real authentic uh, 
opportunity for community members to gather, mm-hmm. no matter how you define community. Um, and it's hard to gather in Kaka'ako because there's very little shade. <laughs> and it's pretty hot out these days. Mm-hmm. So the original idea was to build what we kind of thought of as an indoor park or shaded gathering space that could be used for all manner of things. Um, and so there's a structure inside that was designed by Atelier Bow Wow, an architecture firm from Mm -hmm. Tokyo. Um, They work with some of our local craftsmen here to actually build the spot. Um, Inter-Island Terminal, our organization, in essence, we kind of produced this project. Mm -hmm. And now it's available for anyone to use. And basically, you get on our website or the Agora's website, which is kakaakoagora.org. And you can request to use the space for anything. We've had a a small Lego users group use it one mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon. Um, we've had one person book it for a date. They took a date to the space. Yeah, that's and fascinating. And, of space. course, Bert and uh, uh, Hack to the Future, yes. Code for Hawaii, uh, Hawaii Open Data, which I worked with him on, also benefited from using that. Space. Yeah. And I we've also we... had um, folks use it for meetings. I think we have a couple high schools that are using it for their class reunions. So, Big and small, all sorts of things. And, you know, what we've learned is that the community comes in all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. For sure. So but, now you're a year in. Yes. And you're celebrating that with another June full yes. of events. So it's the 17th today. And you have, let's start with some of these events you have. You have one uh, tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. Tell us about that. So um, tomorrow's event is actually presented by our organization, Inter-Island Terminal, though not all June Kambu events are authored by us. And that was the point, is to open up the month of June, invite community organizations and individuals who wanted to present something um, to do it for free with our, the support of our organization, Inter-Island Terminal. And tomorrow's event is part of our documentary film series. Um, for those of you familiar with Inter-Island Terminal, you'll know that we present a year-round film series, but we focus pretty much entirely on documentary film, mm-hmm. our personal favorite genre. Mm-hmm. And so tomorrow's film is called Seeds of Time, and um, it's it's about... Well, it's about a lot of big issues, but it focuses on the story of Carrie Fowler, who's, I guess what you call an agricultural revolutionist. And he um, directs the Global Crop Diversity Trust in Rome. And his big project of his lifetime and his organization's lifetime was to build a seed bank uh, to help all cultures and people throughout the world um, create sort of a genetic bank or genetic resource for seeds Uh, which is, you know, agriculture and food security, not just here in Hawaii, but worldwide, is becoming um, quite a hot-button issue and quite a a precedent issue, I think. So there's, a, a, uh, I guess, a threat of losing some of the genetic diversity in terms of uh, natural seeds? Yes, natural seeds, the things that we eat, the way plants propagate, specific varietals. Um, We see a lot of that here in Hawaii with losing a lot of sort of our genetic history for our kalo crops mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. other native and endemic plants and species. But um, other cultures throughout the world, in Peru, in the Philippines, in Asia, throughout Europe even, are also losing their genetic crop diversity. Now, Carrie, I, I think was uh, he did a well-received TED Talk, yes. so people can go and look for that. Carrie yeah. Fowler did a, t- a TED Talk about what he's doing, but this is a documentary film. It's, you're not screening the TED Talks, was it? No, we're screening the film, and it kind of tells a story of how they got this global seed bank up and running, and it was sponsored by the country of Norway. It's built in really an architecturally striking um, structure or building, and it's deep in the Arctic ice 
um, in the Arctic part of Norway. And so that's where all the seeds are sent. Um, To me, the most surprising thing is uh, that it's such a difficult global negotiation to get certain countries to participate or to allow Mm. participation or to provide funding and um, to clear all of the hurdles and make sure everybody's needs are met and that this is really seemingly a very democratic process, but it's a process where democracy takes a lot of time and work. Mm -hmm. You know, what's also um, really a fun thing to to do when having these uh, films at, at Agora is that Normally, it's a screening of the film, and then there's a, a discussion period. Yeah. And, well, the ones that I've been involved in, I mean, there was essays that were actually oh. written by some of the uh, maybe panelists. I mean, is there a, a format for this particular uh, showing? Yeah, so we're going to be screening the film. Um, I believe the screening starts at 6.30. And then following the the film itself, Rick Barboza from mm-hmm. Huiku Maliola, the native plant nursery based in on the Heia side of Kaneohe, will be helping to lead a little bit of a discussion. He'll talk a little bit about his experience, um, trying to revive and and diversify the native plants that are used throughout here on Oahu, mm-hmm. um, but also taking questions and helping to kind of grow a little conversation amongst the audience. So Great. that's uh, tomorrow, but uh, as you said, it's a full calendar. Is there anything later on in June that uh, you wanted to highlight? I know that uh, I'm excited about Friday. There's Tycho, but yes. I mean, who doesn't like Tycho? And I, the acoustics in that space, I think, would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really loud on Friday <laughs> night for the Tycho Center of the Pacific, but we have events every night of the month except for Mondays and they range from um, Powwow School of Music is doing is actually doing our finale of the month they've got a lot of bands performing Um, we've got a creative placemaking workshop with Ann Frederick who started Hester Street Collaborative in New York City and worked with a lot of communities on community initiated design um, interventions in public spaces and parks. And so she's going to be coming to do a workshop with us about that here. And that's next Wednesday. There's yeah. a lot of dance programs in that space yeah. as well. Yeah. The 20th, Saturday the 20th, is actually the monthly night market in the neighborhood. And during that night market, Kakaokogora will be open and there'll be a dance performance that's actually part of a global sort of um, a global performance that has to do with water issues. So mm-hmm. a lot of choreographers mm-hmm. around the world are getting together that day, and they'll be performing pieces that have to do with water and issues. what's this on the 23rd, Make It Mighty Ugly? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun hands-on workshop that we're doing. Actually, Trisha Lagasso, local independent curator, um, is leading that workshop, and it's a it's sort of a breakthrough your creative angst kind of workshop. Um, it's very hands-on. They'll be working with folks through some exercises that'll get people to break down their creativity in- inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And um, it should be fun. It should be a good gathering of people. Anyone of any level of interest or skill in the arts is welcome to that. And Sounds good. Actually, all of the events for June Kaboom are um, open. They're free, mm-hmm. first of all. That's the most important piece is that they're free so anyone can come. You don't need any experience in whatever the subject matter mm-hmm. is. Um, but we welcome dialogue and questions, and it's a great chance to come check out our space. Now, this is the marking your first year. I have to put you on the spot and say, what do you see as your dream as an accomplishment or a vision or a theme maybe for this next year for Kaka'ako Agora? Yeah, so, um, you know, 
having Kakakogora be open and available to pretty much anyone from the community to book an event in, um, we get about nine or ten different community groups a month who are using the space for events. And I think our goals going on to our next, our second year in the space would be to increase that number. Um, we're pretty ambitious. So our goal is to both get repeat users of the space. Um, so I know Bert, Hawaii Open Data is a repeat user. We've had a couple groups. And then also to get a bunch of new people into the space and thinking about how they could use it for their personal, organizational, or sort of hobby. Oh, groups. definitely, yeah. yeah. We'll, we we'll keep track of that. Get for the sure. word out on that. So yeah. again, where can someone go for more information on Kakaako Agora's events? Uh, interislandterminal.org. Fantastic. Sounds Thanks, good. Thanks, for joining us. Thank you. And of course, also here in the studio is Jay Fidel from Think Tech Hawaii, and he's here to tell us about this month's panel on military in Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, thanks, Bert. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, Think Tech Talks, uh, downtown forum, we call it. Uh, Think Tech and Oceanit, we're co presenters, going to uh-huh. present this downtown forum. We're calling it the military in Hawaii, an uncertain future question mark. Well, wow, certainly, uncertain, huh? We've yeah. been seeing a lot of uh, transition in the, in the, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and certainly transitions with the movement and the strategies for the, for the military in the U.S. around the world. Now, it's notable that our show has covered a lot of these topics. There's dual use, developing technologies for the military that can serve commercial or community needs, um, and certainly in terms of a driver of technological development as well as an economic driver for Hawaii. Uh, what you're saying it's an uncertain future. What will be, I think, what will be, in your mind, some of the major threats, perhaps, to the current state uh, status quo for the military in Hawaii? Well, you know, the, the residential community in Oahu is creeping up on the basis. That's true. Closer all the time. Oh, I see. For the demand, the man for uh, uh, housing, homes? Uh, not only housing, it's just that a, a base requires some space. And back when, when these bases were established, you know, Pearl Harbor was established in 1874, you know, uh-huh. long, long before the overthrow. Uh, there was plenty of space around. And in, indeed, until the last, what, say 20 years ago, there was plenty of space around all these bases. It was, uh, you know, open space. Now, residential communities have come right up to the gate. Uh, and it's hard to do the traditional military operations in some of these bases when you got when you got people living virtually across the street. Sure. I mean, I live in Mililani, and I hear exercises from yeah. where I live. Um, so there's certainly, it sounds like, a civic planning uh, aspect to one of the uh, to one of the topics you're going to be covering. Yeah, well, you ask, uh, you know, what what could the problems be? Certainly, that is a problem. I mean, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a we had a um, a crash of an osprey, mm-hmm. and a number of people were killed and wounded, and so forth. And it was right in a residential neighborhood, and uh, that's pretty scary stuff because people think, well, that could come down on me too. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, that was like in the the Kaneohe area, yeah, yeah Waimanalo. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, and then what about the, um, you know, the growing, I guess, the unstable nature of the Asia and, and perhaps uh, the fact that the Guam is, is building up or, or attracting more military presence, uh, you know, the fact that we're still in Okinawa? I mean, are those We want to be further in Okinawa, right, too. Right, right. I mean, are those also factors that are going to be pulling military away from Hawaii? Well, who knows for sure? Those decisions are made deep in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you you know, as a rational matter, you have to think that if they're building up the troops in Guam, uh, they may or may not be, you know, uh, moving troops 
and material and you know facilities and assets from here to Guam to do that. Uh, you're not sure whether Hawaii still occupies the same strategic location, you know, as uh, as the post of the the outpost of the Pacific, right. Right. I mean, as it used to. Right. I mean, you hear things about the uh, the, the Chinese building a, a whole airstrip on a uh, an island that they basically created, <laughs> you know, in 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 disputed waters. Uh, it probably would be much better for us to be somewhere in Guam or near Guam uh, as opposed to. All the way 2,000 miles away. That's a good point, Bert. That's true. I mean, the military has to be more nimble. We like to think of uh, – we can't think static. We like to think of the military as rooted here. But in fact, in the 21st century, the military has to be able to get around all over the world. And, um, you know, if you if you think old-fashioned, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, if I tell you that the pivot, the pivot to Asia at the beginning of the Obama administration, you know, the, Obama and, and Hillary Clinton made that as a matter of policy, and they pivoted to Asia. But, but you know, it has become less prominent now because of what's happened first in Central Asia and now in the Middle East it requires more attention. And you really wonder whether Hawaii and the pivot is as important to Today, as it was four or five years ago, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if it was me, and I'm certainly not in the Pentagon, but if it was me, I would think about putting assets say, hey, on the East Coast instead, mm-hmm. because that's a lot closer than and of, here. And of course, given the impact the military has on Hawaii's economy, its population, uh, even a percentage change in the budget and the allocation and the priorities can have certainly an impact here in uh, Honolulu. So uh, this event is tomorrow. Who are the panelists that uh, you are tapping for this conversation? I'm glad you asked that question, Ryan. <laughs> It's an impressive panel, I must say. Absolutely. <laughs> it's an impressive panel. I, you know, I, you know, I don't know how these things come together, but they do, and we have a really fabulous panel. So Ralph Kosa, if you don't know who it is, he's the the chief of the Pacific Forum. Pacific Forum is the Center for Strategic and International Studies out of Washington. It's a think tank. It's probably the most prominent think tank in Hawaii, and it it covers Asia and most of the world these days. And he's the head guy, mm-hmm. and he's very knowledgeable about this sort of thing, and very interested. In and telling us how you know the military strategy has changed in the world and in Hawaii and in the Pacific in the last few years. So we'll hear from him on that point that you were asking. Uh, Colleen Hanabusa, remember her? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very active now, and she's lining up for you know the next race with Brian Schatz, and she's coming down to talk about it. Uh-huh. Um, she, as you know, a former Hawaii congresswoman. Jeff James is a retired uh, Navy captain, but he's now with Booz Allen. Uh, Booz Allen right here downtown. <clears throat> Booz Allen had been involved in a lot of uh, intelligence issues of reason, uh, and he's going to be able to talk not only about what happens to the Navy, but what happens to the contractors in the Navy. Stan Osserman, a wonderful guy and very close to think tech. Stan is a uh, retired um, National Guard uh, general, but he's also, he also runs HCAT. Right, mm. the Hawaii Center for uh, what Advanced mm-hmm. Transportation mm-hmm. Technology on Cook Street, uh, not too far from Fisher, not too far from Agora. As a matter of fact, right up. He probably comes to your programs all the time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Stan Stan is going to talk about the the issue you mentioned, Ryan. The personnel here, you know, ten percent of the workforce of the state is military. There's a lot of people, mm-hmm. and ten percent of the total population, likewise, including family, is military. Mm-hmm. They have a huge effect on buying, um, and they would have a huge effect if they weren't here, in terms of the economy, the consumer economy, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's going to talk about, you know, 
who's who's here and uh, what kind of effect they have. And, and the fact that we've been wedded to the military, we're in a love affair with the military for 140 some odd years. Uh, they are well ingrained in our society. Um, uh, I saw that you had Mark Takai on your program as well. Yeah, Mark Takai, a newly uh, elected Hawaii congressman, uh, Jennifer Sabas of, uh, of uh, Dan mm-hmm. and Owe's staff, and Zaps Latiper, a retired Navy admiral who's got a, a great vision about all of this. So this is happening tomorrow. Where can people sign up to uh, go to this event? Well, of course, thinktechhawaii.com. Sign up there and uh, come around, and you'll enjoy this with a lunch at Laniakea. 1130 is when lunch begins. Program goes from noon to 130, and then you get a chance to class pans with all our panelists. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you do first-class uh, panels, uh, Jay, so that's going to be a great event. And thanks, Jay, for, uh, for joining us. And, of course, uh, we'll re- return with our science communicators, uh, Alicia Wood-Charleston, Christine Waters and Chantel Chang, and we'll talk about the science communicators, Ohana. We want to hear what drove the formation of this group and, of course, what are some of the tools and strategies they use to communicate the importance and value of science to our communities. Today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. But, of course, you can enjoy the program, and this is Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Alicia Wood Charleston, Christine Waters, and Chantel Chang. And Alicia Wood uh, Charleston is the outreach coordinator for the Science Communicators Ohana. She also has a PhD in marine science from Oregon State University. And her studies were on Hawaiian corals. And her, I guess, hashtag SciCom focuses on helping <laughs> scientists speak more effectively across fields and into the general public. Hashtag SciCom here. Yeah. Christine is the secretary of the Science Communicators, Ohana. She recently received an MS in geology and geophysics from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And Chantel is a graduate student from the New Neuheimer, Neuheimer Biological Oceanography Lab at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She serves as the webmaster of the Science Communicators Ohana, managing the graduate student science blog and Facebook page, as well as the program manager of the SOAST Miley Mentoring Bridge. Now, of course, the big question that we want to ask is, is being a science 
communicator a vocational choice? Well, we'll have that answer soon. Of course, uh, this show today is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. And of course, we want to welcome everyone here to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank Aloha. you. <laughs> Aloha. Now, Alicia, um, maybe you can help us uh, start off and, and perhaps answer that most important question. I mean, what was it that really started the Science Communicators Ohana? And th- was it an effort to broaden, perhaps, uh, what you folks do in terms of your graduate studies? Um, yeah, like a lot of science communication nowadays, it's been very grassroots. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Communicators Ohana was started out by a couple of graduate students, Shimi Rii and Michelle Youngbluth, which are both biological oceanography students mm-hmm. up at SOWEST at UH Manoa. Um, and it partly started because they had started a blog. So we, they have a blog that's going on up there, um, SOWEST blog. And Chantelle can tell you a little bit more about that later. But they uh, had a hard time getting people to submit entries to the blog or to submit entries that didn't require a fair bit of work to kind of reorganize Mm. them and make them more accessible. So we brainstormed a little bit on how to do that. And I had recently just come back. Um, I used to work um, with Seymour with Shimi uh, previously, and I came back more of a communications position. So they had this idea to start up like kind of a network of family Ohana to mm-hmm. to sort of support communication training. And um, they got together, wrote a charter. It's now a registered independent organization at UH Manoa. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to just try and help graduate students, postdocs, early career researchers, whoever wanted to be part of it in the SOAST sort of broader science um, uh, efforts at UH Manoa get them uh, ways to sort of practice and train on how to communicate their science better. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of started out is partly because we wanted to practice our science communication, and the best way to do that is through practicing. Well, so, I certainly know the struggle of trying to find uh, content for a blog and keep it going. I run more blogs than is probably healthy. Um, so I want to hear a little possible. bit. I, I don't want to hear about this, I guess, the SOEST blog. So it's for the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, and I would imagine showcases what happens at that school. Can can you tell me about the blog itself, the that kind of foundational element of the Ohana? Sure. Yes, all of the blogs are written by graduate students from SOEST at UH Manoa, and they get to write pretty much about anything that they want to. You know, they can write about their research or what got them into studying science. Um we also have guest submissions as well from undergraduates and postdocs. Um, and we welcome really anyone uh, to write in our blog to practice communicating their science to the general public. So when you say um, practice communicating, is the form of, of communicating or the, the, the method of choice writing or is it any form of communicating that, you know, say meets your fancy? Well, the blog is mainly primarily writing, of course, but we also have workshops that work on, you know, speaking Um, in the next semester. We're looking forward to hosting some improv sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, one of the other workshops that we've had was the pub speech workshop and where basically we got everyone to write down on, on an index card. Um, what their research was about, and you can explain it to you know a potential employer or a five year old nephew mm. or your grandma grandpa who knows you mm-hmm. know um, so Chris- so Christine, I mean, what was it that drew you into this uh, ohana of communicators? Well, 
for me specifically, I, I participate in a lot of um, off-campus groups. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me about my science, I couldn't relay it to them the same way that I did with other scientists. I needed to be able to distill the information into a digestible form for individuals that don't know what phytoplankton are or who don't know how a species resonates on a cellular level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I needed help, you know, either from my peers or the science communicators, Ohana, in getting that information to them without sounding like a nerd or a geek <laughs> or, or not being able to communicate it to them at all. So, so it sounds like it's much more than, than writing. I mean, it's just the ability, the basic ability to communicate science perhaps on a, on a verbal level to per- people that perhaps are non-scientists. That's great. I mean, and, and so what are some of the tools and techniques that you might use to make it understandable for people like me? <laughs> Uh, well, that's sort of the core part of science communication, and it doesn't really matter if it's a verbal or a written uh, transmission. It really comes down to, you know, what is your goal? Mm-hmm. Who are you trying to communicate? Who is your audience? And then really coming up with some key take-home messages that you want to get across. And then you can design anything around that you want to. You can design a blog around that. You can design a three-minute talk, a pub speech or an elevator pitch. Anything like that can mm-hmm. be designed just around understanding that core, what your goals are, who your audience is, and what your take-home messages is. Are. And in, in, it doesn't have to be in science. It's any technical field can really benefit from this kind of training because mm-hmm. every technical field has jargon. Absolutely. And that's really what it comes down to is once you figure out, you know, what your goals are and what your messages are, you really need to figure out what language you can actually use. And this is something that Christine alluded to, right? So you you can use language that makes you sound like a geek that people won't understand, or you can use language that identifies with them, metaphors, similes, somehow of, you know, pop culture, if you can, to bring your science a little bit closer to things that they already understand. Mm-hmm. And so the jargon is where we really take a lot of practice and say, okay, I can't say the word phytoplankton because my audience doesn't actually know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So therefore, science communication fail. Right. Well, scientists also love their acronyms in addition to their, their terms of the terms of tools of the trade, terms of the trade. Uh, so I can, I can certainly see the appeal of that. And of course, Bert and I, um, doing the show for uh, almost seven years now, kind of also trying to be a bridge between scientists and technical people and the broader community to show the value of what they do. So, Chantel, you kind of talked about the background with the SOEST blog, but it certainly seems like the organization, the Science Communicators Ohana, has grown to encompass something larger than university researchers and the SOEST blog, correct? Yes, so, I mean, some are, what are some of the, the ways that you, for example, foster communication skills? Are you perhaps engaging the communications department at the university? Or are there just some members of your group that are more comfortable, for example, with public speaking and forming phrases and, 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 and sharing their knowledge that way? Yes, I think a few of the officers in the science communicators, Ohana, are really well-versed, like Alicia and Shimi Rhee and Michelle Jungbluth, and all of them have a lot of experience with, you know, giving public lectures and reaching out. We post flyers all over campus to, yeah, like the communications school, and we reach out to the different schools at UH Manoa mm-hmm. in order to try to get them involved, um, you know, the biology department, Um yeah, I would say that there's um, – we sometimes have more trouble recruiting within the graduate students of SOEST because they oftentimes are a bit more nervous about communicating and they're not quite sure if they have the time. And we've had some really good input. Um, even with the English department, we have 
uh, a member on our officers board, uh, Julia Whiting, who is kind of our what do we call our liaison mm-hmm. officer? Mm-hmm. So we have her come in and she'll do set up sort of creative writing practices and stuff. And part of that is just to get people practice just writing in something that's slightly less boring than technical science language. And then that helps improve how you actually write your thesis or how you write your next talk because you can le- learn how to tell a story a little bit more. And granted, a lot of science is very formulaic and scriptive when you have to write a paper, but um, having those sort of thought processes that you can do a little bit more creatively, I think, brings in a little bit more enthusiasm when you have to go back to science writing. Well, we were really excited to find this organization, the Hawaii Science uh, Science Communicators Ohana, because we recently became aware of another group called the Hawaii Science Writers Association. But I can already see kind of complementary elements in the sense that the Hawaii Science Writers Association were people that were coming from the writing side. They were they worked for publications. They they were looking for assignments, and they were coming to the science community saying, "Let us tell your story." Your group is coming from the inside of science and saying, "We have a story to tell, and how do we have that?" So you're kind of building a bridge from different sides. Now, Christine, I'd, I'd imagine this is not a challenge for you, but one thing that we certainly learn um, on our show is that scientists who are doing research sometimes don't see communicating that or selling that if you have to go that far. As really a core requirement of what they do. It's like, I am trying to solve the problems that will save the world, and it's not my job to go on a television show and say, this is why this is important, because the science community understands why it's important. How do you bring a researcher who's head down in the research and says, you need to have a conversation with other people about what you're doing? Um, this is something we do in our uh, group emails pretty often and it's you know to solicit individuals who think that science is for the scientists um, to join the science communicators Hana, or to get involved in the SOAS blog and it can be a challenge to get those individuals to see why it is that they need to communicate to you know quote unquote laymen mm-hmm. um, but some of the examples we give is that a lot of the funding for our science comes from public organizations um, and those people have a right to know that we're using the money for the research to do something that may affect their lives for the better or that may uh, change the environment around them or that may make resources available and you know doing science for the sake of science um, I don't feel like it's as rewarding as knowing that you are you know you have some effect on your community now that's a you know I I like the argument, um, but I guess are is it is it compelling enough to to change the uh, let's say character of a, a researcher or an academician that that now they should look at perhaps uh, being able to communicate more broadly. Um, on one level, I think there's there's that sort of convincing that you have to do, but then at another level too. Uh, there seems to be a growing interest on the part of the community to better understand or the need to better understand what the benefits of science are uh, so that they can, you know, when they see things like telescopes getting built or, you know, various scientific methods being used for, let's say, crops, you know, there's some understanding of what it is that goes on behind the scenes. So I think there's a responsibility that scientists need to help communicate uh, some of that. Alicia? 
Uh, yeah, I would definitely have to comment on that <laughs> sitting over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I completely agree that the public really does have a vested interest in science just because of the curiosity level, if nothing else. And I think that's fairly self-evident after the show like Cosmos was so popular mm-hmm. and the stuff that, you know, Bill Nye is doing. He just sent, you know, an unnamed rocket into space, which is everybody wants to do that when they're seven, you know. So I do think that there is a, a generational shift that's happening in academia. I think that, you know, give it another 10 years. So 10 years previously, science communication wasn't really a term. Um, And now here we are, and it's a massive grassroots effort, and people are really getting behind it to the point where the funders, like the National Science Foundation, and, you know, private investors, like um, Gordon Betty Moore Foundation, Mm -hmm. they're really pushing that there is some outreach and communication of the science that they're supporting. And that goes a long ways, especially the Gates Foundation. A lot of the stuff they do, they're really good at letting the public know what they do. And that inherently provides support for the research itself. And so I think it's going to be a generational shift. Christine? Yeah, I, I have something to add to that. I think groups like the Science Communicators Ohana and the Science Writers Association, mm-hmm. um, they're birthed from necessity because what we're doing is kind of reactive. Uh, I read a study the other day that said that most of the um, Y generation is getting their news incidentally from Facebook. And um, you do have individuals out there that are promulgating stories about the TMT or about GMO or um, uh, what else have I seen recently? Well, there's there's no lack of controversy, autism. Yeah, and they're not reading scientific journals mm-hmm. to get the information. They're just reading these short little blog articles. Mm-hmm. And so... Could be even a, just a tweet. I mean, mm-hmm. so so are, are you taking on the responsibility of helping to perhaps uh, make it easily, more easily understood uh, on all of these topics? And then <coughs> on top of that... How can I be confident from the source? I mean, are mm-hmm. you able to curate the source so that I am confident that what I hear from you is something that I should take to heart? Yeah, um, and when I say that it's reactive, it's because a lot of the individuals that are blogging right now with regard to science aren't scientists. And so I think we're trying to get to a point where, you know, we're behind the game now and we can get, you know, on equal ground with those individuals and then maybe be ahead of the game um, and be proactive about the science that's made public or made um, popular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's actually from the individuals who go to the field every day, who run the samples and who have the data to provide to individuals. Mm-hmm. Now, Alicia, I want to talk about that, that the platform then, since, since it came up, because I think it's key in the sense that even reading blogs these days seems old-fashioned. What? 500 words? That is way too much. I don't have the time for that. So it is going to be a tweet. It is going to be a Vine video. It's going to be an Instagram post or a... Or, Snapchat. Uh, or a Snapchat, <laughs> says Bite Marks on Snapchat. So... Uh, what are you seeing? I mean, is that a conversation that you're having in the science writers, uh, uh, in the uh, science communicators, Ohana, um, that it's not even necessarily writing? Because we did talk about writing. What are you talking about when it comes to these other tools? Well, uh, a lot of the conversation goes beyond just what's happening in Hawaii. I mean, the, the questions and the, the conversation that you guys are talking about right now is all over the map in terms of science communication in general. Do researchers feel comfortable 
tweeting about their research? Do they feel comfortable um, promoting it on Facebook? And it's kind of a give and take. A lot of the younger researchers are doing it anyway. They grew up with that culture. Mm -hmm. But then they're getting some flack from other researchers who think that they're wasting their time or they shouldn't be putting out stuff that they don't have, you know, uh, four pages of graphs and figures as evidence supporting it. So right. that conversation is going on among our little group, of course, but it is a much bigger conversation. And that's part of this transition zone about what is science communication, who actually does it, and are scientists really capable of doing it? And I think most of them are. They're going to ones that we don't want to talk to the public, but the majority of them have something interesting to say. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about this because uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, sort of the real open public uh, discussions about some of the recent things like uh, like Solar Impulse or maybe the LDSD that just recently launched over in Kauai. So we're going to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Alicia Wood Charleston and Christine Waters and Chantel Chang about the Science Communicators Ohana. What are some specific challenges that the Ohana has faced, maybe trying to bring themselves uh, to speak more publicly? Of course, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls, but we'll do our best to ask the best questions. And we always value your feedback. You can email us at any time at feedback at bitemarks.org. You're listening to Bitemarks Cafe. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Alicia Wood, Charleston, Christine Waters, and Chantel Shang about organizing the Science Communicators Ohana. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the different tools that are out there. And, and I think the obvious ones are on social media, The all the, uh, uh, the new applications. Of course, Facebook and Twitter aren't new anymore, but, you know, there's... there's uh, Vine, Snapchat, there's Periscope. Uh, Chantel, I mean, now that the young science researcher is, is uh, uh, probably born and raised in this environment and, and this is probably second nature, what's your thoughts on you know, being sort of like the person behind the, the web, uh, website, incorporating all these different social media elements into helping to tell the story? I think they're all really useful. Right now, 
We only have a Facebook and the blog online,、mm-hmm. unfortunately, because it's read by me, and I'm a second year grad student. So I just <laughs> finished all my courses, which was just insanely busy. Who's so, got the time for that Snapchat? <laughs> <laughs>、yeah. I mean, I guess you know, having Snapchat available, I shouldn't have an excuse because it just takes a snap, right? <laughs> But.、Um, Well, the thing is, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about Snapchat and and uh, uh, other sort of multimedia tools,、um, Snapchat, you know, originally started as being a way to send a message between you know me and 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 you and anybody else here, but they've also incorporated this capability of building stories that you can post, and they've also attracted some. Fairly recognizable media brands, you know, like CNN, Time, ESPN, National Geographic,、uh, to give them the capability of building their stories so that people on Snapchat can experience that. So it becomes another vehicle by which you can tell that story. And I think the ones that I've enjoyed watching on Snapchat are the ones that actually take time to tell that story. So you know, just out of、um, the ones that I like, it's things like.、Uh, Uh, the L.A.、Um, Museum of Art and and the、um, Honolulu Museum that they actually take it upon themselves to show art in a new and and sort of interesting perspective. But Alicia, let me ask you though. I mean, some people feel that the medium might actually diminish the message, right? Like you said, there's no room for all of those footnotes and annotations. So if you make a declaration, a scientist would say that is not backed up. Where is your evidence? And you don't, you know, you're not going to be posting.、Uh, Two thousand words there. So if somebody said, "Hey, you know, I'm a scientist. I want to show what I tell my story. I'm going to be going on this research expedition, and I'm going to be using Vine videos and and making little six separate second snippets." A colleague might say, "That's making your work seem trivial." Or you you know, who do you think you're actually reaching there? I mean, what do you say to someone who's skeptical skeptical of all of these tools? I probably just tell them to get with the program. <laughs> <Yeah> . But I mean, you have a good point. Like,、uh, you know, if you're out on research cruises, you're sleeping maybe three or four hours a night. You're trying to get your experiments done, and so a lot of what times what happened. And I'll, I'll give credit to the Schmidt Ocean Institute and Carly Weiner.、Mm-hmm. She's got hired on to do communications for their cruises, and so she's got people on there doing blogging for the cruise, doing a lot of the social media stuff. So this is the part where I think we get into a little bit of crossover where I. Don't think the scientists should have to go through and create a Snapchat story. If they want to, that's fantastic, and we'll totally help them do that.、Mm-hmm. That's what we're here for. But when you're、uh, when you're talking about something that it takes that much time and energy, I can guarantee you it's not going to be the individual researcher that has、mm-hmm. the time to do、mm-hmm. that. And that's where they need to really be able to open up and have collaborations. You have research collaborations. You should have communication collaborations. And so the communications department up on campus, they have students that they can send out to do video blogs with you on your cruise. Like there are ways, there are solutions to do this. So not every scientist has to manage their full social media platform.、Mm-hmm. Well, you know the couple of、uh, projects that. That are recently underway here in Hawaii.、Uh, Solar Impulse. I mean, they were supposed to be you know, five, six days away from from、uh, landing in Hawaii, but I think they're still in、uh, Nagoya, Japan. And、um, but they have their Twitter account. They have a Periscope. They also have a website that's pretty extensive.、Uh, and so we've been following that and sort of just having the ability to to follow and and see the progress of a project like that. Sort of brings me more closer to that event.、Uh, similarly, the、um, the、uh, what's it? The LDSD, the、uh, 
low low density super Sonic accelerator. Accelerator yeah. that they tested on Kauai a second time. Unfortunately, again, the parachute deployment wasn't. Uh, ideal, mm-hmm. so they're going to have to give it another shot. But uh, again, there is there is media outreach, and they are keeping people up to date. Um, I, I will say that you know um, it, there are many reasons to be for or against. For example, a telescope, uh, the TMT. Um, I I had jokingly said, and now it's been quoted back at me a couple of times that you know if the story was told. Uh, openly throughout the process over that eight or nine year process um, when I remember we covered and we talked about the selection process there was a huge international competition where this would be cited Chile or Hawaii mm-hmm. and I said you know if if we were as aware not, uh, then as we are now of this project in general we'd be cheering for the telescope like we cheered for Jasmine Trias so being able to, to, to sustain that story and make people aware of uh, the value perhaps over a long term not just being reactive mm-hmm. is really important. Uh, Christine, um, is uh, for, for this organization or for what you do for your research, uh, what kind of outreach events or are you standing on stage or are you still uh, you know working on, on blogging or you have to focus on your research more? I think I've written three or four blogs for the mm. SOAS blog. Um, we got to stand on stage uh, June 2nd at uh, Anna O'Brien's for what's called Nerd Night. And that is, yeah, (laughs) that's an event that happens every first Tuesday at Anna O'Brien's. And there's usually three scientific talks, 15 minutes each, but they include a drinking game. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. uh, If you're nervous about communicating, the drinks might help. Yeah, and it's educational and fun. Um, For the most part, I think, I, I, you know, you were talking about Twitter and Instagram earlier, and I Instagram, I have interacted with those individuals who think that, you know, it, it makes me seem less credible as a scientist because mm-hmm. I, I utilize that. But I mean, I also follow Scripps and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and National Geographic and Scientific American. And um, I steal their hashtags. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the more recent stories that came up was uh, actually just, you know, semi-related to science, which was the little girl wanted a pair of dinosaur shoes, but they didn't make them for girls. They were only for boys. And so a bunch of geologists, because that's my major, uh, took up the story um, and called it hashtag in her shoes. And it's about us as female scientists out in the field doing the things that men do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah, a little girl should get some dinosaur shoes. So I think being able to extend what we do in science to the rest of the, in the way we live, things like, you know, gender equality, right, which you don't necessarily think of when you're thinking, oh, they they do rocket science, Mm -hmm. um, is really, you know, helpful. And and I don't think a lot of people out there know that in addition to building telescopes on sacred lands, you know, we're also trying to make things better in other areas. Mm-hmm. And no. so harnessing and or becoming or, or driving even a movement, I think, uh, is, is that's I think that's a great example because it, again, kind of says that there is a there are higher callings and higher purposes to uh, dealing with plankton. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's a bigger picture there. So, you know, uh, Christine, the thing that I'm interested to hear perhaps from you as well as others is, uh, is the idea that as a communicator, you're now representing the science and you're almost kind of personifying that science. And now you become kind of the spokesperson for that science. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on making that leap to becoming sort of that spokesperson, sort of representing that science or that field. I mean, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who really 
took it upon himself. I mean, he's sort of following the footsteps of, of Carl Sagan. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys were very well-renowned in their field, but they took that next leap of being the communicator that really took it to the public and became identified. Now, you may not need to be as 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 uh, uh, out there as, as uh, uh, Neil Tyson or, or um, Carl Sagan, but if you're on Instagram or if you're on Snapchat or if you're, you know, you're starting to build that personification of the science and being that connector, what do you think of making that leap, Christine? As a side, um, one of the first presentations at Nerd Night was um, by our, our president or vice president, so Shimi and Michelle, and um, they made the point of saying that most individuals cannot name a living scientist. Uh, you brought up uh, Carl Sagan mm-hmm. and um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And when I think about why I became a scientist in the first place, it was individuals like that that inspired me because I also at the time could not name a living scientist. And what we have is an opportunity, if not an obligation, to increase transparency in the sciences so that people can see that, you know, if there is a cure for cancer, it wasn't just, you know, whoever owns and it's probably a big organization owns that patent, but you know some individuals worked on it, and then there's a cure for cancer, mm-hmm. and they can live, name a living scientist. So when you ask me, you know how how did I get into being a spokesperson for science? I actually feel incredibly intimidated because mm. I still look up to those people, and mm. um, I don't know for certain if I consider myself a spokesperson. It just sort of happen. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think uh, one of the things that is becoming an ish, uh, a trend is you're, you're, you're furthering a science and you're doing your work, but you're also a brand, sorry to use the B word, and you, know, you kind of foster your own community. But the reason why that's important is that you build your credibility over time so that if a hot button issue comes up and people will turn to you and ask for your expertise because they know over time that you are someone who understands it, who thinks rationally, who can uh, give them some insights. So how about you, Alicia? I mean, uh, when you're becoming a science communicator and you're telling the story out there, um, how much do you think your personality and your your distinctive voice is part of what you're building? I think it's a huge part of it. And um, I've sort of switched out of research a little bit to try out science communication as potential profession. We'll see how it cool. goes. Oh, very good. Okay. Um, but I mean, one of the things is, is, is the statistic that Christine was uh, referring to came out um, in 2014, early 2014 from Research America. And it was two thirds of the American public can't name a living scientist. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, I'm like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that it does come down to the personal level where it doesn't, you don't have to be the spokesperson or the Neil deGrasse Tyson, but you, it's important that people know that scientists are people too. And, you know, we, uh, you know, have family and we have hobbies and we surf or we hike. And if we don't have a lab coat on, most people wouldn't think that we were a scientist. So there was, you know, there's some really interesting um, Mm. stereotypes that go along with being a scientist Mm -hmm. that most of us don't adhere to. And I, like I said before, I mean, some scientists probably shouldn't talk to the public, but most of them can and most of them should. Well, so. there is, you know, there's that element of being kind of the uh, the, the introvert and, and maybe not as, as outwardly social uh, because you like sort of doing your science and you're like, you like being in the lab or you like looking through the electron microscope. So to make the leap, though, to actually become more personified, more in the public, I mean, is that a, is that a big leap? Uh, Chantel, maybe share your thoughts because you're, you're the web person. You're putting your name as a byline. How is it that you are now perhaps elevated to that 
public persona? Oh, I feel like I'm still making the leap <laughs> as a new scientist. Um, yes, it's it's really um, quite scary and intimidating, as Christine was saying. Um, and oh, I wanted to go back to what Alicia was saying about you know the idea of what a scientist is. Have you guys seen those pictures of those kids who draw scientists? They would draw some crazy, wacky scientist with glasses mm-hmm. and crazy hair and. Yeah, and so it's kind of nice to show, you know, the children and other people out there that, you know, I can be a scientist too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, we need more like that. I mean, we mm-hmm. need more people like you that represent science as a as a, uh, uh, a field of work and study. So this is where I'll just interject real quick. This is kind of where um, we try to train, we give opportunities for scientists to train on a very simple thing like a pub speech. And so that's sort of designed, it's like an elevator pitch, but it's meant to be very informal where you're out at a pub, somebody asks you what you do. And instead of doing the normal science thing where you um and ah and look away and you have run on (laughs) sentences and you use jargon that nobody can understand and it just like everybody's like, okay, I'm out. No drinks for you, you know? So the idea is, is to give people a chance to, excuse me, to like bring in their own personality into their science. And I just ran um, a little project where I had some graduate students and postdocs take their really highly technical jargon science abstracts and try to turn it into a science communication article and getting them to actually put their first person active adjectives into the, it took a lot of work. So it's just, we just need to be more comfortable talking about ourselves. You guys should do a, an ignite event. Yeah, like you know, little, that's the five minutes, 20, yeah, like 20 slides, 15 seconds a slide. Have your scientists go up there and just, you know, have them talk for five minutes, but they got to get the message, you know, out there in that short period of time. <laughs> so, uh, Christy, well, Alicia mentioned that, you know, she's considering possibly making the communications part of her science the focus of a, of a vocational career. Um, you're, you're focused on research as well, but I think you just graduated. <coughs> what's, what, what's going on with you? Well, I, I just graduated and I worked with um, Aerotech to find a job and I got a job at um, Amec Foster Wheeler. Oh, well, congratulations. Great. That's always good coming out of uh, school for sure. Yeah. Lisa, where can we find out more information about the Science Communicators, Ohana? I would definitely recommend checking out our Facebook. And if you just search SciComm.Ohana, uh, you can find us. And if you're just barely interested in science communication, a lot of what goes up there is articles that are, we find as we go through our Twitter accounts and our other uh, news sources. Just interesting so, articles. Good yeah, stuff. it's mostly just interesting articles. And then if we ever have an event, of course, it goes up there as well. Sounds good. Well, Alicia Wood uh, Carlston is the um, – oh, and as well as Christine Waters and Chantel Chang. They're all part of the Science Communicators Ohana over at the UH and SOAS. We want to thank you all for joining us today. Yay, thank you. Mahalo. Thank and you. thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the resurgence of podcasting. And if you miss any part of this uh, edition, of course, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called DMAS, or D-M-A-S, with a song called Laced. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.
you try.